The junior mining sector in the Democratic Republic of Congo holds the key to unlocking long-term growth and sustainability across the country. There are ample opportunities for exploration, development and production in both explored and unexplored parts of the country. However, one of the biggest challenges facing this sector is the need to secure investment. How do juniors overcome this challenge? Hi, I am Fuyi Samfobo and welcome to Deep Insights. Today, senior editor Jared Peter chats to Boris Komstra of Pangea and Andrew Bell of Red Rock Resources about juniors and securing investment for mining projects in the DRC. Let's join the discussion. Boris, what attracted Pangea to the DRC and what is your take on today's topic? Thank you, Gerard. Yeah, Pangea has been involved in the DRC um, pretty much since it started opening up for mining um, through various other companies We're involved in Metarex. And more, most recently, we have commissioned and are optimizing Alphaman resources up in North Kivu DRC. Uh, for, you know, we've always been DRC's bull, DRC bulls. We are firm believers in the mineral endowment that that rests in the DRC and its potential. And yeah, a new wave of investment needed. Uh, certainly, I think I think it's not necessarily just the juniors. I think um, there, there's a lot of work that can be done all the way through. If you look what uh, Ivanhoe is doing at Kamoa, it's just an extraordinary project, and there there are many others that are in the wings. Great stuff. Thank you, Boris. Andrew, let's bring you into the conversation. What about your involvement in the DRC and what is your take on today's topic? Well, uh, our involvement dates back about three years and it, it's through two companies, really. Uh, Red Rock Resources, of which I'm chairman and chief executive, and Power Metal Resources, of which I'm chairman, which was formerly known as African Battery Metals. And both of these companies have DRC projects. Uh, in the case of uh, Red Rock, we've, there's a number of joint ventures we have or are contemplating. Uh, in the case of uh, Parmetal Resources as one, we've had, I'd say, the full spectrum of experiences. And uh, we've known, we've encountered probably not just some, but all of the difficulties that small explorers can have in their first steps in the Congo. Because the Congo is like a lot of countries, it, you have to do your apprenticeship there. You have to spend a little bit of time there getting to know it before you can really be effective. And for those coming from an English-speaking environment, as I certainly do, and I don't know about Boris, um, but uh, when we're not used necessarily to Francophone Africa's civil law antecedents, and that everything, both administratively and legally, looks a little different. Uh, the way they charge taxes and other fees as well. And you have to become familiar with all of that. And it is a complete culture shock when you're not used to it. If you have already been active in, say, uh, Côte d'Ivoire or Senegal or Morocco, it won't be so difficult. But uh, transferring to thinking the way that Francophone Africa thinks um, is in itself a culture shock. And there's a reason why most of the big mining jurisdictions in the world have been the English-speaking ones. And even if you go to Canada, the English-speaking provinces have seen more mining activity and investment than the French-speaking ones. And that reason is that there is a long history of cultural adaptation 
to the mining industry. And so um, I don't think that the problems of Congo are all specific to the Congo. It is a process whereby uh, you know, one of the world's richest countries with the richest mineral endowment and the global mining investors are like two sort of big elephants or they're trying to dock or to mate and it isn't always an easy process but it is getting easier and we see progress. Wow Andrew you're certainly giving us food for thought. Boris I want to bring you in about Andrew talking about the uh, mineral wealth in the country. Now the country's high grade and high value mineral wealth has attracted investment over the years but is the DRC doing enough to encourage investor confidence in the country currently? Regrettably, I'd say at the moment, or rather of, of recent past, no, uh, in that the old mining code really was a catalyst that unleashed enormous activity in the mining sector, in that it gave investors confidence that you know, there was a 10-year period in which things would not change. Um, with the recent advent of the new mining code, that has changed. And I think what is very concerning for international investors, particularly in mining investors, you know, once you've built, built a mine, you can't exactly pick it up and move it to somewhere else. Um, it, it, you, you are pretty captive. And one is, as Andrew says, um, obliged and um, obligated to comply with a whole raft of, of legislation and various taxes and other uh, reporting responsibilities, which one does. And you are of the belief that if you abide by the rules on your side, the other party will do so likewise, um, which hasn't been the case. So I think, I think the DRC upped the risk ante in which it is viewed as an investment destination in the world. There's absolutely no doubt that it's, it's mineral endowment is almost without parallel anywhere in the world. Um, but what an investor always looks at what is the total risk package? And that includes commodity risk, it includes mining risk, it includes sovereign risk. Um, there are a whole host of risks that investors have to take into consideration. And the old mining code was, was very clever in that it grouped a whole bunch of them and put them in a corner where it was you could spend your time, you could understand them, and you could factor them into your investment. Um, that is now gone, which is now making investing in the DRC a little more tricky, particularly for international investors to get their heads around. Great stuff. Andrew, I want to bring you in on what Boris is talking about, the old mining code. Let's look at the current DRC mining code. In your view, has it affected investor confidence confidence and are there still improvements to be made? Uh, yes, I, I think the rise in copper royalties, rise in gold royalties from I think I'm correct in saying from 2% to 3.5% and 2.5% to 3.5% in cobalt royalties potentially up to 10% from 2% uh, plus 30% tax plus 0.3% of turnover to the community plus 50% tax on new projects, on what they call super project profits, which is anything 25% above the bankable feasibility study level, and with a state-free share of 10%, which was 5%, contract stability guarantee reduced from 10 years to five years, 
that does create a bit of a headwind for investment. Um, there's no question about that. Now, you have to explore and find the resources and then uh, negotiate what you're going to be able to negotiate with the state. But finding things is the first step. And you have also to believe that if the environment in the country is uncompetitive in any sense, then over time it will change. And since the time frame of exploration isn't short, by the time you come to discuss these things, it'll be okay. I mean, we've seen in countries like Tanzania, Ghana, uh, Kenya and others, that when they change the mining codes, there are always one or two companies that walk away and say, well, in principle, we're against this, it's not fair, it's terrible. And they then, after a period of years, come back and join the other com companies that have meantime invested there. So, uh, you know, I, I think it is a slightly retrograde law, the new mining uh, code, and um, Everyone had expected that in the course of passing it through the legislature, there would be compromises made. And I think Boris would probably confirm that there really weren't. Boris, do you just want to weigh in on what Andrew is saying? Do you think there's still a lot of improvement that needs to be made, even given the light, in the light of the new DRC mining code? No, absolutely. You know, the, the, the code is one thing and then you have all the regulations that go with it. And the two don't necessarily always talk to each other very clearly. Um, French is a an interesting language for legal documents in that a lot is kind of open to interpretation. And I think that's where the old mining code was very successful, is you could establish exactly which taxes you are liable for, which departments you are liable to, and, and it worked very well. Um, now, mines have been thrown open to the general fiscal code, and I don't think all the parties who are meant to be taxing the mining companies necessarily understand where the parameters are for them. So, you know, the, the first point of departure is go as high as possible and um, try and knock the door down. So, you know, you, mining is a very, very difficult industry. It's a very high risk industry. And the more you labor the companies with bureaucratic um, compliance and huge teams of lawyers and accountants and whatever, you're detracting from the value that company can be applying to improving the operations and increasing recoveries, um, scaling up the operations. It requires management time, it requires money, it requires uh, attention. And that is attention that detracts from the fundamental premise, which is let's get as efficient an operation running that is good for everybody. And, you know, there's this perception that mining companies don't contribute anything. Well, if you take every $100 of revenue that comes into, let's say, a company like Alphaman, once you start deducting all of the royalties, the various taxes, VAT, taxes on salaries, you find that the state actually gets 65 cents in every dollar. Um, but because it doesn't come as a direct yeah, this is Alphaman paying its tax on this period. You know, it's coming through um, staff salaries, PIYE, expat, expat taxes and all the rest. P people don't fully appreciate what the full contribution is. And, and I think it is, uh, you know, mining is by far and away the best pioneering industry you could wish for anywhere. Many of the world's greatest cities were built on mining camps. 
and the DRC should not be any different. Um, Lubumbashi is a great example, but the, the country is littered with in terrific deposits, and there's no reason why that shouldn't be replicated everywhere. But it it cannot be replicated if the parties are working against each other. You know, there needs to be a compact between uh, the government, the communities, and the mining companies, and that compact one has to agree on what is the end goal. And if the end goal is to reinvigorate the mining industry, we need to establish what is required to do that and to march towards that, that destination. Andrew, if I can just bring you in, uh, you know, Red Rock's Luan Shiba is a significant new copper cobalt discovery in the country. My question to you is, are you able to attract investment for this lucrative uh, project? Well, it's it's too early technically to call it a discovery. I'd say that we're you know we're about to drill it. We're actually just constructing a camp there at the moment with security and you know, latrines and uh, breeze block buildings, storerooms, bedrooms, and so on. So you can gather that we have a fair amount of confidence we're able to carry on with it. We are actually. We haven't actually drilled it yet, but the amount of work we have done on it, both geochemistry and geophysics, have uh, have given us a high degree of, I think, confidence that we have an understanding of the structure, what's there, what the potential is. So we do think it's going to be a project, yes. And um, one of the things, of course, that, that has held us up when we first came to the country is we, there was no ground geophysics equipment that we could readily so we had to bring in people to do ground mag from Angola and IP from South Africa. But now we have bought our own equipment from somebody who is getting out of the business in another African country. And it's good equipment. We know how to use it. And that will be coming down to the Congo. So we'll be able to do uh, any amount of geophysics extremely cheaply. And I think that's that's important. But uh, we're, going to, we're going to proceed with Luan Shimba as fast as we can. Um, we have drill hole locations, we are contracting a drilling company, and we expect to have a good results uh, in the summer and then to carry on from that. But yeah, we think it's, it's got reasonable infrastructure. Uh, it'll, it should be a good project. We are also talking to some neighbours there about uh, potentially working with them to expand the size of it. But this is not unique. Um, we have done, we know, pretty disciplined exploration in the way that you'd expect us to in the Congo. There is a shortage of small or medium companies doing the same thing on equally good prospects all around. But uh, it, it really surprises me, despite the advertised difficulties that we spent a little bit of time talking about today, it really surprises me, given the prospectivity and the, the potential grade, that there are more people in there looking in what is the best copper cobalt province in the world uh, for these minerals. Because if people are willing to look at sort of 0.5% copper or you know, low-grade copper discoveries below 1% um, and bring them into production, it seems irrational that they're not doing exploration in the Congo. Because grade is always king. If you've got the grade, you should be able to solve all the other problems. And if you don't, it's because you're a bad operator. 
Yeah, uh, Boris, I see you nodding your head in agreement there. <laughs> no, and Andrew's absolutely right. You know, you, you can change almost anything about a mining project, except the grade and the quantity. Everything else can be changed. The, the country's legislation can change. Um, your mining method can change. Everything can change, but you cannot change those two factors. So when you decide to go, you better be sure that you have the grade and that you have a fairly solid idea of the prospects of the commodity you're choosing. And, and Andrew's absolutely right. Um, it, it is astounding that there is not in a huge amount more activity in the DRC at the moment. Boris, let's look at the demand for battery metals. Is this the future of the country's mining sector? Well, I think, I think the, the DRC has always been skewed towards um, battery metals and battery-related metals. You know, the, the world's primary producer of cobalt, um, copper, tin, uh, lithium projects are coming up. So I, I don't think it's necessarily changed at all. I think it's just got itself a, a boost by the, the dynamics that are changing at the moment. And there is this drive for electrification of, of all sorts of sectors, which will be a continuing and ongoing feature of our lives going forward. Um, I don't think yet the people promoting those have figured out where do, where do all the metals come from that are required to do to do this. And the DRC is is primely positioned for it. Andrew, what is your take on this? Well, in part, I think that the prospects for copper are extremely good, even without electric vehicles. And with electric vehicles, still better. Uh, you know, uh, my view of the electric vehicles and so on is much the same as my view on uh, on guns at the age when they were competing with uh, the longbow. The longbow and even the crossbow would be have a longer range, be more accurate uh, and therefore more deadly for a long time after the introduction of guns. But once guns were introduced, you couldn't go backwards. Uh, in particular, it was easier to use because you didn't need people training for years and years uh, to use a longbow, and eventually it worked. Uh, on every metric that I can think of, uh, electric cars are extremely inefficient and uh, don't make economic sense. But the, the world and its governments have decided that electric cars shall uh, come in. And it is true that battery technology had spent decades and decades not advancing at all. And what this demand for electric cars has done is stimulated the kind of investments in battery technology that will produce results and you know uh, we will end up with people driving electric cars because governments would have it so i think the process has now become unstoppable uh, we can't we're not going to go backwards therefore the demand for electric car battery metals and all the other things that are involved are going are going to uh, is going to grow whether that's the copper for the coils in electric cars uh, whether that is for cobalt uh, as uh, for the in the batteries themselves uh, or for uh, lithium uh, or for nickel or for manganese which are obviously cheaper alternatives but have different technological issues um, the demand is going to increase uh, it may be that eventually something like uh, hydrogen cell batteries will take over but at the moment all the cars all the production lines all the technological tweaking is in this field. 
so that for, for the foreseeable future, those metals are going to do well, like zinc in the 1920s. We continue our discussion with Boris and Andrew after this short message. It will never be the same. The new normal is business unusual. At Mining Review Africa, we want to partner with you to ensure that your brand is still visible in these unprecedented times. That's why we're offering you a bouquet of digital marketing choices to ensure that your company is still top of mind with your clients. This includes podcasts, partner profiles, videos, and webinars. Want to know more? Click on the Engage tab on miningreview.com today to find out how we can give you more bang for your digital buck. Welcome back to our discussion with Andrew Bell of Red Rock Resources and Boris Kampstra of Pangea. Today, we are talking about juniors in the DRC. What do they need to do to succeed? Boris, I want to come back to you. And in your experience of working in the DRC, do you believe that juniors can run profitably at a smaller scale, given all the risks that come with operating in the country? I think from an operation perspective, absolutely. You know, when you have high grade, your dollar per ton rock taken out is a lot higher than on a medium or a lower grade project, which gives you more revenue at the operational side. I think where it does become problematic in the DLC is, is all of the other requirements over and above running an operation, um, particularly all the, the um, you know, bureaucratic requirements, legal requirements, getting your way through everything that goes on top of an operation, and logistics. Your very often your logistics lines are quite far, so you need to have an operation with su- su- sufficient gravitas that it has a degree of redundancy in the operations that you can keep things running without needing to get a spare or something to your operation. Um, overnight or in a very short period of time. So absolutely, when you have a very high-grade operation, you can scale down the required tons that you have to push through the front end, um, but you you do need that critical mass to be able to weather the storm and um, operate smoothly in that environment. Andrew, how much would the DRC's mining sector be worth if all the negative factors were normalized? Well, I think the mining business in the DRC could be one of the largest in the world. You've seen in Botswana the effect of a industry that is really pretty much one commodity that's been key there. Uh, but by having a benign environment for investment, uh, you've been able to achieve the highest growth rate in Africa. And I think if the DRC were to play cards well, they could see um, the same thing. They could see a huge boom in investment. And that has a really significant impact on the economy. But as Boris has been saying, it isn't just the royalties that they receive or the taxes. It's um, It's all the other things. It's the employment taxes, it's the money in the local community, it's the, lo- it's the local purchases of services and goods and food and so on. And, and in a country like the Congo, I suspect that that money circulates locally 
quite a few times before it filters out into the general economy. So you you, re, you invigorate many parts, many areas, um, apart from the capitals, by having mining activity. Very frequently, when you set in a country like this, uh, you sit down in an operation and you start recruiting people. You find yours are far the best jobs out there because the other jobs, if there are any paying jobs, paying salaries at all, are in agriculture or in retail and uh, you're, you're much preferable. So the impact of this on individuals and families and regions is considerable and uh, that is a multiplier effect. And uh, I think uh, we've actually seen this. We were talking earlier about how cities have been founded on mining. And the best example perhaps of that, in the, or even countries, the best example of that in the world perhaps is Melbourne. Melbourne is a city that would not exist were it not for the gold rush of the, 19, of the 1850s. And that really made Australia by the amount of money that was circulating and the num amount of immigration it stimulated. Uh, and you know, we talk about political risk here. The political risk in the state of uh, Victoria in Australia, where we're also active, is highly educated professionals not wanting their environment disturbed. So it's a risk, but it's just you have your risk comes in different shapes, different countries. But um, uh, what? What do we see recently? We see the rather left-wing governments in Victoria suddenly realizing that in order to improve employment and particularly to improve rural employment, so that it's not just in Melbourne itself, but other parts of the state, uh, by comparison with other Australian states, you can actually generate more wealth uh, with more employment effect uh, by uh, and up and increase the growth rate of your state by encouraging mining. So after probably a century when uh, Victoria mining was either neglected or had a sort of pall of disapproval over it from official terms, the last few years they've actually been encouraging mining investment because they see it can uh, impact an economy favorably, even in a country as developed as Australia or a state as developed as Victoria. Boris, I, I want to come back to you and a, a question that I will be posing to Andrew as well is, what advice do you have for juniors considering the DRC as a project development destination? I, I think I, I can only just revert back to what Andrew started with. Um, you know, understand the environment, understand the legislation as best you can, um, make sure that you comply with it. Uh, you know, the, the DRC is not hugely expensive if, if you if you pay your taxes on time and all the rest but when things get out of hand is is when you start getting penalties for things that either you have filed incorrectly or possibly missed so understand the environment understand the legislation and stick to it you know it's it, it's not an environment where you want to be trying to take shortcuts to keep your cost down anything you, you're going in, abide by the rules, and and I think it's a, a terrific destination in that the potential reward is enormous, um, and you just have to manage um, the, the inventory risk. I do I, I do sincerely hope that the government does simplify things for mining companies. Um, you know, we're great at building mines. We're not so great at wading through many files of legislation and trying to interpret it and understand what it means and who do we have to relate that to. 
So the simpler they can make that for us, um, the easier it is for us to, to operate and to extend operations. Andrew, the same question to you. I mean, what advice would uh, you have for juniors that are considering uh, project development in the DRC? Well, obviously you go there, you try to find reliable people to work with, um, and you make sure that Boris's point is in uh, this kind of legal system, you have to be quite meticulous about timing with making all your payments on time. You start making anything late and they will raise an assessment against you. It'll be a ridiculous amount. And the implicit invitation is to treat with them or treat with an individual to get it reduced. And this, of course, is a game we just do not want to get involved in. So you have to be meticulous and rigid. Think of, you know, imagine a French bureaucrat at the other end of the, he's not French, of course, but imagine a French or Belgian bureaucrat sitting in a desk somewhere waiting to see if you put your returns in on time. You have to make sure you do everything absolutely correctly and you uh, you want to find good people to work with to do that. Um, and one of the difficulties you can find is finding good lawyers because the legal system is fairly young. Um, <clears throat> you know, many things have not fully developed and uh, so the reliability of your counterparties is one of the things that will make a difference between failure and success. Uh, apart from that, uh, thinking you can go in there and just speak English <clears throat> is probably a, a mistake. You want to have a francophone capability. Um, the people in, in Katanga, which is the main mining area, uh, and I think far, further up in the northeast, they're going to be speaking Swahili uh, and they're going to be speaking French. And if you are speaking English, you will find that restricts the number of people you can speak to and it limits the depth of your interactions with them. So you have to be I mean, culturally sensitive or you can go all around the world and find that before you speak their language, they will speak back to you in English and they're keen to practice it and their English is much better than your language. But with the French, it's always been different. If you go to France and they will pretend not to speak English, even if they do, because they, because they remember the time when French was the great international language and they're still sore about the fact that it isn't. And uh, so you go into a Francophone society, you have to show some respect for, uh, for that. And I think if you therefore go in with all the cultural um, the willingness to adapt to a, a, a civil law system, a francophone system, something where you have to be uh, behave in a quite, for my case, un-British way about some things, and uh, you work hard, then there is no obstacle. Congo is one of the best places to be in the world if you're in the mining and exploration business. And that means people who are investing in mining and exploration businesses really shouldn't be frightened of it. But what I really look forward to, and I think this is a very important point that I keep making to Congolese government representatives, is the difficulty of getting visas acts as a huge obstacle. If that difficulty weren't there, I would be bringing parties of investors down so that they could see on the ground how far things have developed and what, and get excited by the prospects. But it is uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to get visas. 
Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Boris, I, I want to I want to extend a question on, on what Andrew's talking about, you know, embracing the culture of the country, etc. Has that been an integral part of your company's success in the DRC? You know, I, th I think we view it as uh, when, when we go into an area, the, the people of that area are our hosts. We are their guests and we need to behave as such. I, I do think that, um, you know, I consider myself African. Most people fall off their chairs laughing, but I'm, I'm far more at home in Walikali territory than I am in London. I just feel more comfortable in the environment. So I think for, for we, we, and we've operated in the DRC, you know, since the early 2000s intermittently. So we have a long history in it and, and, and as of going back to Andrew, I said we've done our apprenticeship to a degree. One is never completely, you know, the DRC is a vast country and the way things are done in Chikapa is not the same as the way things are done in Walikari. So one does need to adapt it. You do need to be culturally sensitive to what is happening and to listen, to open a dialogue and try and keep it open. Um, it, it, you're not always going to be talking to the right people, and and that I think goes back to Andrew's point about find the right people. It, it takes it sometimes takes a very long time to find out who you should be talking to and to engage with them in a meaningful manner. And there will be always be parties who claim that you're talking to the wrong people, and you should be talking to them. And and it generally goes around securing some kind of a consultancy, a commission, or the rest. But certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the DRC culture is not foreign to us, um, although our francophone capabilities aren't below what they should be, um, we do have, have sufficient people who are able to carry us through that. That's all we have time for today. Thank you to our guest, Andrew Bell of Red Rock Resources and Boris Kamstra of Pangea for joining us on Deep Insights. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.